0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in I have three guests on the show today. Uh, Dr. John Hammett, who is the John Dagg Senior Professor of Systematic Theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Katie McCoy, who serves as Director of Women's Ministry at Texas Baptist um, General Convention of Texas. She holds a PhD from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where she previously served on faculty. Uh, Katie and John are co-authors of a um, a really important work on theological anthropology called Humanity, which releases September 1st from BH Academic. Also joining us is Dr. Mark Cortez, who is a professor of theology at Wheaton College. All three of my guests are experts in what is called theological anthropology and this show is all about theological anthropology why it's important and some of the contemporary ethical questions that theological anthropology having a robust theological anthropology would help serve us to address so please welcome to the show the ones and the ones and onlys uh, dr john hammett dr katie mccoy dr mark cortez Katie, John, and Mark, it's so good to have all of you on the show. Mark, you've been on uh, at least once, um, I think once, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and uh, Katie and John, it's good to uh, meet you for the first time. So thank you all for coming on Theology in Raw. Yeah, thanks for
1: having us.
0: Uh, let's just go around, and uh, again, I, 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 I'm not sure how to manage uh, the, the, the best way to organize this, but who, who are you, and how did you get into, uh, I guess, theology in particular, and, uh, and theological anthropologies more specifically? Well, we'll start with you, Katie, I guess.
1: Sure. So I um, did my doctorate in systematic theology and my dissertation focused on Old Testament laws about how women's bodies were treated in Old Testament culture, and then comparing that to other ancient Near Eastern uh, legal codes and um, intersection of feminist studies, women's studies, theological issues. That's kind of been my, my niche. And then from there, not only was teaching at the seminary at Southwestern Seminary, but then now I've moved, I've been for the last two years director of women's ministry for a state convention called Texas Baptists. So I'm getting to take all of this stuff that um, I was teaching at the academic level and then being able to bring it to the women in the pew. And that's really exciting. They are they are hungry for for just as much depth as yeah, at, at our yeah. seminary students.
0: You know what's funny is um I've talked to several women who have gone to like women's Bible studies mm-hmm. and it's always like this real niche, like how to be a better wife or how to be a godly woman rather than just a godly person or whatever. And it's like, can we, can we study theology? Can we look wrestle with like, you know, the stuff, all the guys next door are wrestling with. So, uh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I think that'll, that'll definitely scratch an itch. Uh, real quick, can you give us a snapshot of your dissertation? Cause that sounds really fascinating. I didn't know that was your, your topic. Um, the role of women's bodies, yeah. how they're treated in the Old Testament.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, covered the uh, period laws, pregnancy laws, sexual assault laws, the um, so-called trial by ordeal in Numbers, and then huh. slandered bride in Deuteronomy. And uh, essentially looked at how within this patriarchal or patriocentrist culture, it showed that biblical law demonstrated these hedges of protection for already vulnerable women. Um, and in some cases, situations where something should not have happened, like sexual assault, to protect them from being even further exploited. And it was so fascinating. There are things in biblical law that modern Western law has only recently caught up with when you're looking at how this worked out in society. It's, it's just magnificent. So much so, by the way, that there was a German higher critical theologian in the 20th century who studied the law of the captive word bride in Deuteronomy i think it's 21 and she converted to Christ like she went from theology as an academic study to loving the Lord Jesus who she said this god cared for this type of woman that everyone else would have forgotten and exploited that's the god that i want to know it was amazing
0: that's that pa- sorry we i we could we could take we could old podcast Podcast on this, so that's the passage where the woman. Is if you go in and you conquer your enemy and you see a woman that is delightful in your eyes, you can take her home. She mourns for thirty days, Mm
2: -hmm. which is
0: usually taken as the pinnacle of misogyny. Uh, You're saying in the ancient context, it's the exact opposite.
1: So much of why we end up coming to the Old Testament with that lens is because we are Western hyper individualists reading a collectivist culture, ancient Near Eastern text, and we have to sort of Take our uh, take our glasses off, put on yeah. different glasses, so to speak, and, and understand the lens through which we are, are supposed to read in ancient Near Eastern legal code. And when we when we do that, essentially, when we culturally translate it, we find that it is completely different than everything we would think in our Western Individualist wow. minds, and really, what I'll tell you is that the, the the law reveals the lawgiver, and so we are seeing the the heart, the ethical values of God Himself, and His law is perfect. So, how do we approach it from that yeah. from that angle? What are we not understanding? And it ends up being just just yeah. a, a big moment for a lot of women.
0: That's fascinating. I've appreciated Sandy Richter's work on, I mean, a lot of those passages too. That's it, okay. So, we, I, but we weren't supposed to talk about that. But uh, that's fascinating. I would encourage people to check out your work, uh, John. Uh, tell us uh, a bit about who you are and how you got into theology, theology and theological anthropology.
3: Well, sure. In terms of of uh, background, my first interest of of uh, air was ecclesiology, and I did a through working with college students. College hmm. students were involved in peer church groups to say what's their influence of the church for for college students. So I, Got involved in ecclesiology and, uh, and did a, my dissertation on pure church groups and ecclesiology, how they relate to the, those two topics. Then about 15 years ago, my, my colleagues here at Southeastern said I ought to work in the area of theological anthropology for counselors. His counselors counsel people and they a good theology of people. So he encouraged me to work in that area. So I began working in the area of, of theological anthropology, our topic we talked about. And, and that's what the Bible says about humans. So I just began to working through the, the the chapter of Genesis and those that, uh, that were created. Uh, we're in the image of God, created male and female, created the word, created a complex constitution, created for community, all those different, different okay. categories. And so I began working through that. And that's how I got into the, the book that Katie and I wrote together.
0: Awesome. That's great. Fantastic. Um, Mark, uh, my audience might... Be familiar with uh, your recent podcast, but uh, give us another update on who, who who is Mark Cortez. You've done youth a lot of youth work in the past as well.
2: Yeah, I actually think it's interesting. There's a bit of a common theme here in with respect, to kind of our gateway into theology, whether it's women or college students, or for me, it was youth ministry. Uh, kind of early on, I caught a vision that discipling middle school and high school students required encouraging them to think deeply and well theologically. Um, was kind of dissatisfying yeah. yeah. a lot of the approaches to youth ministry. Uh, so even while I was preparing to be a youth pastor, that was my first career, my my undergraduate degree was actually in systematic theology with a, a minor in Greek, and um, I very much valued that theological training for doing youth ministry. That's then also my gateway into theological anthropology, uh, once I realized that there actually is an entire doctrine that thinks about what it means to be human, uh, and then kind of the subcategories of that, who am I, why am I here, what am I for, what's up with this body that God gave me, how should I understand myself as a sexual being, I'm like... Oh, this is just what I do as a youth pastor, like all the time. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I would say theological anthropology is a doctrine for youth pastors.
0: Oh, okay. I want to come back to that. That's fascinating. Okay. I want to dive into theological anthropology, uh, but does anybody notice? So it's something really terrible about our screens and our backgrounds. Our, my complimentary audience is going to love this. <laughs> the three men have these massive libraries. And then Katie, you're in the kitchen like why, why did you
1: I'm sorry I, mean, oh, even,
0: so I just think it's hilarious I'm obviously not
3: promoting it is my, stereotype. Uh, my
1: little apartment this is the best place so I've got my desk here is facing the living room yeah. and so what you're seeing behind me is yeah
0: it's hilarious it's
1: so funny <laughs> Okay, so
0: uh, complementarianism aside um, whoever wants to jump in can, can, we, can we just give a what is theological anthropology? I think most people know what anthropology is, the study of mankind. They know what theology is. They can probably, you know, you know, figure it out what what it means, but what is theological anthropology? And then you know, we can add, like, why is it important for Christians today? Mark, you made a really provocative statement that, this is a, a doctrine for youth leaders in particular. Um, so yeah, what, what is theological anthropology? Why do we
2: need to study it? I kind of pick up from there. I mean, I obviously would expand it, but beyond, it's not just for youth pastors, although I think it is, there is a particular connection there that I find really intriguing. So maybe I'll let John talk about kind of what it is. So I'll do this a little bit backwards. What I do want to say is kind of who it's for. I think anybody who is seeking to work with other people, really in any context, mm. but particularly if you're seeking to work with people in a situation where you're trying to form those people in a particular way. So, parenting, counseling, coaching, teaching, discipleship, pastoring, uh, kind of any of those settings where you're seeking to intentionally form another human person in a particular way, you are doing so, whether you're aware of it or not, you're doing so according to an anthropology there's some vision of what it means to be human and how we flourish as humans that's at work behind the kind of thing that you're doing as you're seeking to form this person or these people that you're working with. Uh, so anybody who's doing that sort of thing mm. in any context, I think is somebody who should be interested in theological anthropology. Interesting. No, that's good. Yeah. John.
0: So
3: yeah. Said, for me, the, the, the entree for me was counselors who said, we need a book, book about what it means to be human. And so uh, for me, theological anthropology is drawing what the Bible says about what it means to be human. And it's just fascinating to me that the first two chapters of Genesis gives, I think, the major categories that we're creatures, made in God's image, made male and female, created to be workers for community, with a complex constitution, but then we're fallen. So we're not today as we were. So all those categories are the categories for theological anthropology.
0: Okay, good. Good. Katie, anything to add?
1: Yeah, I yeah, would we'll just say there's no disconnected doctrine. So whatever we are forming in our theological anthropology, there's some connections to our Christology, our doctrine of Christ, and and even the things that John was talking about, community. Well, that affects how we understand our ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and, and even our, our doctrine of, um, well, we don't have a doctrine of like political. Well, yeah, political theology. That would yeah, be another yeah. one. What is our... Responsibility to other people, mm. and so uh, the the theological anthropology you've got, it's going to have these offshoots of how it affects other ways that we understand doctrine, um, even why God created us. What is it? Not only what does it mean to be human, but then as we're talking about our own sanctification. But how does that connect with our humanity? We're not just talking about our spiritual formation, but our whole life formation, including the formation of the body, the value of the body. We're going to be resurrected bodies. How does that all connect? And, uh, and, and also, how does it connect to our other doctrines that um, sometimes we might take for granted hmm. that we understand, but not understand necessarily how they inform our doctrine of humanity?
0: And it seems like, I mean, today, so many questions are in that people are asking or, or not asking, but should be asking, are, are, are somehow living at the intersection of, of human identity, right? And if our starting point is we have a creator God who he tells us who we are, and that's our starting point, I mean, that, that has massive ramifications uh for yeah. i mean i you know whenever you hear the word identity we automatically go to sexual or gender identities but even like our yeah our political identity like no god tells us uh where our allegiance lies um or even what we do with our bodies and say i mean it's just i've there's so many ripple effects to when you start thinking about human mm-hmm. identity and and, and god the, our creator god being the the ultimate foundation and source behind all those questions that that, that really is a a uh, uh, shift, a challenge to, I think, many people's thinking today.
3: Disabilities, people with disabilities. Disability, yeah. Yeah. To, to the dignity, yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, your your book, Humanity, by the way, I, I, I do like the title. I know some of you were a little nervous about just humanity. Boom, done. That's the title of the book. But um, it, it's. Um, you interact with scholarship; it's it's heavily footnoted. Um, you're you're obviously you're both scholars, um, so you're interacting with stuff on a high level. But it's it's extremely readable and very practical. That's one thing that I was. That's such a hard um, combination, really. It's something I try to do, and it's just it's a lot more difficult than people realize. Wh- who's this book written for? Is is it? I mean, was that obviously that was intentional to make it readable for all kinds of people, but also doing careful scholarship. Who is your target kind of audience for this book?
3: Well, well, Mark said that anybody that's just seeking to form uh, persons. And so, uh, yeah, uh, first of all, primary audience would would be, again, our our students that we we teach on a daily basis. But then beyond that, congregations uh, the women that Katie works with, youth pastors like Mark was, uh, counselors, those that seek to help other people. Uh, I hope it is is readable accessible for a wide audience.
0: Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we let's just dive into some of these practical questions? Um what are some of the modern practical ethical questions that uh you you address in the book and you feel like are important um important questions that people are asking today that 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 should require a robust theological anthropology to address? I mean, you address a lot of them, but what are some ones that really stand out to you?
3: Well, probably the hottest right now is transgender. So I'll let Katie address that more. She's done more work in that area, but that's probably the hottest single issue that relates to theological anthropology today.
0: Okay, yeah. So start off with a big one. All right, Katie. Yeah, Katie, I know you've done particular work on this area. What are some, maybe even begin with, like what are some questions we should even be asking when we're asking about... What does it mean to be, or what does it mean to identify as transgender? I mean, that just raises a lot of philosophical, theological questions, and and I do want to let me just acknowledge up front. And I know we, all of us will agree on this. There's you know there's philosophical and theological questions that are extremely important. There's also loads of mm-hmm. relational um, questions or sensitivities that we should have when we go about it. Um, so I th- I think you know by beginning by thinking through this on a philosophical theological level, we're not doing so to the exclusion of hardcore, thorough, gracious relationships. I I do think, I think any Christian should agree like our, our theological understanding should be foundational to how we respond relationally to any, any kind of um, uh, sensitive issue. So yeah, Katie, uh, tell us uh, how did you approach that, this question in in the book?
1: I think the biggest approach that, that we, can begin with is, what is the significance of the body? And from the beginning, from Genesis one and two, we see that not only are humanity embodied, but embodied in a different yet corresponding way. And so I, I see so much of the gender conversation being uh, almost like taking for granted that Yes, I have a body, but that's not really very important about me. What What is the defining aspect of who I am? Is this not only inner sense or self-perception, but then how I want to relate? And that's something that we see all throughout gender studies is that r- gender is relationally confirmed. If you're going to present yourself as someone of a different gender, there's there's a, I forget the scholar who talked about this, there's there's a bid taking place. There's that I, I am looking for you to confirm that in me, in that how I am dressing, acting, presenting myself, I'm looking for someone else to validate that and interact or confirm how I am understanding myself. So I think one of the fallacies that we have, at work today in our culture is that it is exclusively, uh, individual, because if that were the case, then, then why would it be so troubling for someone to not be affirmed or to not be able to present according to their, their, their preferred or, um, internally felt, Gender. But then a lot of that also, we cannot talk about this without talking about gender stereotypes. And this is where I think um, the the church has such an opportunity to separate what is biblical and what is cultural. Because when you take away cultural stereotypes, whether we're talking about uh, how someone behaves, has their hair, um, the colors that they like to wear, when you take that away and you ask, well, then what is the substance of gender? If you don't take away feelings and stereotypes, we have to have a conversation about the body. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I loved diving into, it was just like it was like going into a labyrinth was the myriad of ways that male and female are different that have nothing to do with reproduction. Essentially, maleness, femaleness, and then manhood, womanhood, they are irreducibly complex. And these biological complexities inform behavioral actions as well. We can't separate that. We can't separate the brain and the body from gender actions or gendered behaviors. And what I find the most helpful is Genesis one and two we've, we've got, and we all don't, we all just spend like half of everything when we're talking about that, just the the creation narrative. But in Genesis one, we've got two Hebrew words describing male and female. And it's essentially describing how they relate to the rest of God's creation. They are sexual beings, they are biologically formed, and there's a male one and a female one, just like there are other animals, male and a female one. Genesis 2, that relational retelling of the creation story, we've got a different name for the Lord. We got a different name from God. He's not Elohim, he's Yahweh. And then we have different names for human beings. It's no longer the words used for male and female, it's the words used for man and woman. And I think what we see with that is not only how they relate to creation in Genesis 1, how they relate to each other in Genesis 2. So if we were going to put it in common parlance, I think Genesis 1 gives us sex, Genesis 2 gives us gender. And we see the connection between biological sex and gender identity, the intent being that they are distinct aspects of who we are, but not necessarily, we can't say that they are divisible aspects of who they are. God created these aspects to be fully integrated wholes. And our sex, our gender, one informs, or the sex informs the gender, the gender expresses the sexual differentiation. Mm -hmm. And so from the creation narrative, I think we have essentially everything we need to build that foundation. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, in our culture today, that's very complicated Mm -hmm. um, because of some underlying presuppositions when we come to that conversation. But if we're just looking at this from a theological lens, Mm -hmm. I think it's the genius of the Holy Spirit that he's given us everything we need even for this cultural moment to understand how to make sense of the confusion that we're seeing. And I would say that false dichotomy of Mm -hmm. sex and gender.
0: 117 questions for you. I'll I'll try to (laughs) get two. So um, can you clarify for our audience? I know know what you're saying about sex and gender. Can you clarify what those two terms mean? Because some people use them interchangeably. If you're male, that's your sex, Mm -hmm. that's your gender. But you made a distinction between sex and gender. And in the broader conversation, the distinction is... Well, I, I would say people who talk about sex being different than gender aren't usually consistent. Sometimes they'll use the term gender in distinction to sex. Other times they conflate the two and it gets utterly confusing. In fact, it's what it's a habit of mine when I read books on this topic to kind of like take their definition of gender and then lift it. And then whatever they use the term gender to just insert their definition. And it's hilarious because half the time it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so wait, tell us, what, what do you mean when you were making a distinction between sex and gender? And that's fascinating that... Um, I have another question about the, the different Hebrew words there.
1: Yeah. So um, it in some sense, I'm using common vernacular in how our our culture tends to divide them. They, they shouldn't be divided. If you are a, a, a male in Genesis 1, you're a man in Genesis 2. If you're okay. a female in Genesis 1, you're a woman in Genesis 2. So what I'm what I'm trying to say is they are not divisible but distinct. And so sex refers to your biological maleness or femaleness, specifically, if we're going to put it in terms of like Abigail Favale or Jay Brashefsky, it's it's the role that you play in reproduction. Uh, I think Paul McHugh was the psychologist who he was talking about this as well. It's just whatever your uh, role in the reproductive process would be, whether you are donating or gestating genetic material. That's reflecting your biological sex. Our gender is something that if we were to lift ourselves and go to another country or another era, we would find that perhaps it's expressed differently, but there's still only two. Deborah so. Um, in her book, I think it's the end of gender. She talks about this that there there might be different cultural gender expressions, but there's still only two. And and your biology drives you to identify with the one that corresponds with your biological sex. Gender is essentially not only how we understand and perceive ourselves, but it's how we relate. It's how we uh, relate uh, in our uh, marriages, in our other really all relationships. And um, it was John Paul II, I think, who described it this way, that that essentially masculinity is confirmed in femininity. It's, it is the facing of the other that brings the understanding of the self, not only what is corresponding, but then what is different as well. And we need the contrast of another gender, not only to understand who we are, but then who we are not. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm okay wow yeah so uh, I think the the tightest definition I've read that I typically use is the psychological social and cultural aspects of being male and female that's kind of vague opens up lots of questions but I mean I think it, it brings out the point so you're saying that the the Hebrew terms male and female in Genesis 1 are referring to you know biological sex uh, the structures of human nature as they pertain to systems of reproduction Um Which makes sense because the very next command is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth in 128, right? So, um, Mm -hmm. and then Genesis 2, you have man and woman, which captures more kind of the uh, not an either or, but how these two biologically sexed creatures Mm -hmm. interact with are interacting with each other um, on on a more social level. That's interesting.
1: The man being the ish, the woman being the ishah. So, Mm Shah comes from the Ish. Is related to the Ish. Is in every way connected to the Ish, but is still not the Ish. Mm-hmm. And so we we see that that relational connectedness, and then that that brings us to other questions that have been more uh, common in evangelical circles about how those two relate.
0: Yeah, sure. Pre
1: fall, post fall, all of that, uh, yeah. which is which is to be where it's where it's focused.
0: Uh, do you, uh, John, Mark, anything to add right now? I'm sure you guys have lots of thoughts right now. I've I've got other questions. I was going to jump in, but didn't want we to dominate.
3: Just <laughs> on what you said earlier on that, that this should also be fleshed out and how we relate to these people. And so one of the things I really appreciate you, Preston, is in your books you mentioned mention these are my friends. Mm-hmm. I write these books thinking about how I relate to my friends. And so uh, I really appreciate that about you. And want to to focus on that uh, that the trans community has the highest rate of suicide of any group in the world. Mm -hmm. And so just recognizing the the pain they feel, uh, the answers that we give must be just just clothed with sympathy and compassion and mercy. And so uh, all that that Katie has said there, I would affirm, but saying those things, understanding that the pain they feel of of gender dysphoria is not an illusion, it's not something they desire, it's something that they feel very deeply. And so I want to recognize uh, the, the the brokenness of the, the life around us and just, just respond in a lot of that.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. I want to, let me try to represent, because I mean, I, I think a lot of us we're going we're around similar, if not same pages on a lot of this stuff. So I want to try to represent maybe alternative viewpoints um, that I'm sure we've had to wrestle with. So I, I can see a case, I, I, can, I in fact, I've, I have friends that are saying, yes, yes, I agree with everything you're saying. But they would also say, we also have Genesis three, you know, where some of these uh, creational designs get get skewed, and in most cases, one's biological sex and their, you know, sex does lead to kind of gendered behavior. I want to come back to that too, because that, that raises some questions. Um, but through the fall, sometimes things get crossed over, crossed up. Sometimes things don't work out right. And is it is it philosophically philosophically possible for somebody to have a their body to be biologically, for instance, male, but their brain to be more wired female. Um, And and the body-brain question still does interest me on on many levels. You know, I use the illustration, you know, and I don't think this is scientifically possible yet. But like if I, since Katie, you're the one female here, like if I took my brain out of my head and put it into your head and you took your brain and put it in my head, like which one are you? (laughs) Like, did I go with yeah. my brain into your body, so now I am Preston in a female body, or do I stay this body without my Preston brain, but now I have Katie's brain? And which one is me? Which one is you? You know, and people could I, they, people could say, well, that's that's impossible. I'm like, well, that's not really the point. The point is to kind of maybe <laughs> at least at least reveal the complexity of body brain relationships as it pertains to personhood. Um, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, I, I have my own kind of. Re- counter rebuttal to what i
3: just said <laughs> I the toy with that thought because the reality of fallenness we usually say our, our bodies is being fallen but our brains could be fallen too and so sure, yeah. and the problem could be that way so i, I thought about that and what kind of, of uh, kept me from going completely in that direction is a couple of biblical commands about glorifying god with your body and so i don't see how i i i have no option to reject my body I have no option to say I don't think this body should be my body. I should try to completely change it. and those types of things, and so and that kind or offer your body as a living sacrifice. Those types of things, and so I and things are connection between me and my body. I don't think we can uh, say well my, my body's wrong. Uh, I, 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 so I toyed with the idea there that that uh, maybe what's fallen is not my body but my mind, but I, I can't see any way of rejecting my body. Hmm. Yeah, good, uh, Katie. Mark.
1: So. Okay. Fascinating question, because, yeah, it is that it's uh, well, I don't think we'll get to brain transplants, but we are hearing about uh, womb transplants, uterine transplants and things that, you know, at, at what point does someone have the makeup of femaleness? So I've got several things, but first let me say, so when we're talking about neurology and obviously none of us are neurologists, but, but for one thing that we can say that the neurologists have told us, there's not a male brain and a female brain in terms of there's a male brain part and female brain part. We speak about it in terms of comparative language. So female brains tend to male brains are more or have stronger, whatever gray matter, white matter, all of that. So the other, the other factor, and this is where I think it shows the complexity of the human being that God created it to be, is that even if we were to take our brains and switch them, we still have two factors that we wouldn't be able to account for. One is the impact of hormones and the endocrinology of the human system ends up driving behavior, even in the womb, like beginning in the eighth week in the womb. So hormones end up influencing gendered behavior, and of course, we know that there can be all sorts of hormonal irregularities. There are in people with intersex conditions or sex development disorders, and all that. So there's there's that aspect of as well, where the body truly can be broken. But at the same time, how do we know it's broken? Well, we're talking about it in terms of what what the ideal is. So in other words, there is an ideal. And that's, that's how we know when something has, has uh, left that or is an aberration to that, whether we're talking medically or psychologically. And then the second thing, not only hormones, is neuroplasticity. because And this is where we can't separate brain, behavior, sex, gender, is that neuroplasticity plays such a significant role. Some of these studies um, done among trans-identifying young people It's giving you a snapshot, it's giving you a moment what that MRI might show in their their brain patterns, but it doesn't necessarily account for neuroplasticity, that one of the greatest ways that you can change the mapping and wiring of your brain is what you believe and what you do. And again, this speaks to just the complexity and the fearful and wonderful way that God has made us. We We can identify, again, we can distinguish, but... It's nearly impossible to divide. How do we divide the neurological self from the physical self? We can't. Hmm. Oh. And and it's part of it's part of the magnificence of being a human being.
3: Yeah, that's a great response. I, I... <laughs> one more thing. Let I me mean, add one more thing. in That Preston, in terms of dealing with people, recognizing that we're not asking them to conform to uh, a cultural stereotype of maleness and femaleness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, Scripture does not say male thou shall be aggressive, female thou shall be submissive. Uh, male, you should be dominant. You should be... No, there, there's those things aren't in Scripture, so we're not asking them to to conform to uh, st- cultural stereotypes of maleness and femaleness.
0: Yeah, the stereotype thing yeah. that 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 is. I want to be careful here. I, I think that is a a very significant part of understanding certain ideologies surrounding the trans conversation. And I always use the plural ideologies because I mean, I, I'm just off the top of my head. I could think of maybe like eight trans friends of mine that every single one has a different way of thinking through this, you know, <laughs> there, there's no one, you know, and so you, we just can't take like, you know, the, what is a woman documentary and think that every trans person is, thinks they're a wolf or something, you know, whatever they, yeah. you know. Um, so, um, the st- so that when i mean the ser- the stereotypes like if 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 you were going to say just on, again we're we're talking on a th- philosophical level here i am male but i i identify as female or something if you were going to tease out well, what does that mean what does that look like how do you know you know it's almost impossible to articulate that without falling into stereotypes and this is something i have you know a chapter in my book on on, you know it's, it's really sad actually like quotes from parents that had trans kids and they were encouraging social and, and then hormonal transitioning for their kids and the way they explained how they knew their kid was trans was all stereotypes like mm-hmm. oh my son he runs like a girl and he likes long hair and so obviously he's not a boy i'm like oh my gosh like and the feminists are just pulling their hair out because they're like we worked over a century to say you don't need there's no such thing as running like a girl or throwing like a girl or you know one brain scientist who was trying to be Progressive talked about, you know, if you if, if your brain has the emotional state of a woman, then you your brain might be female, even if it's in the male body. I'm like, what, say that out loud. <laughs> emotional state of a woman, like, what does that mean? This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. So you can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable, which is why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Now, as always, I like to make sure a product is something I can personally promote before we advertise it on Theology General. So just the other day, my wife ordered a HelloFresh meal and just to see how it works. And I'll say it was incredibly easy to order. It took her less than like 30 seconds to, to, to make an order. When the meal arrived, turned out my son and I, my 14-year-old son and I, were on dinner duty, which, to be honest, is usually not a great sight to see. Neither of us are really great in the kitchen. But we had an absolute blast preparing this meal, and it was so incredibly easy. The step-by-step directions are super clear, like tons of pictures and easy to follow directions. And not only did the meal turn out great, but all the ingredients are very, very healthy. So with HelloFresh, all you need is 15 minutes. And you'll be enjoying a tasty, satisfying meal made in your own kitchen. They have quick and easy dinner options and also breakfasts and lunches as well. School is right around the corner. So instead of stocking your freezer with frozen burritos and mini pizzas when you're in a pinch, go with HelloFresh instead. It's quick, it's easy, it's way, way healthier, and it's cheaper than takeout or just going out to eat. So you can go to hellofresh.com forward slash 50 T-I-T-R. That's hellofresh.com forward slash 50 T-I-T-R and use the code 50 T-I-T-R for 50% off your first meal plus free shipping. That's a great deal. Again, hellofresh.com forward slash 50 T-I-T-R. When people say sex and gender, what was the phrase you used, Katie? Indivisible or, um, distinct, but not visible distinct, but not. Yeah. Um, so sex should or does lead to gendered behavior. These are questions that I see people. Are we talking like, if you're a male, you will have a certain pattern of gendered social expression behavior. Then my question is what happens when they don't? Does that mean they're not a male? If, right. if a male does act more feminine, is he no longer a male? And then it's like, now we're coming full circle and undercutting the very thing we're trying to say that our bodies right. determine whether you're male or not. So like I hear it, typically it's like conservative political pundits that talk about this conversation and think they're smart. And there's probably a few names, people already know who I'm referring to, but I'm like, you know, sex and gender can be divided. I'm like, I don't know if you've really thought through that very carefully because- what does that mean? Does that mean every feminine male is no longer male?
1: And why are they
0: feminine? Like, what 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 does it mean to be fem? You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I don't know where I found. I'd have to look it up. But there was some study that demonstrated that neurologically, in terms of uh, brain behaviors, that uh, a a homosexual man who essentially would have more feminine behaviors or characteristics. Sure. Yeah still has more in common with a straight man than he does a woman. Okay. Um, Because the, and again, that gets into, there's just so much wrapped up in that. You've got socialization, neuroplasticity, hormonal structure, all of that. It's, it's just a, a myriad of ways that we are so, so complex, but this is also where when you're talking about stereotypes, this is also where I've ruffled a few feathers with this because my definition of biblical womanhood is a biological female who follows God in all of her life and relationships, and and <laughs> how so dare you, Katie? We a female, and and as you are obeying God, He's going to work out what that is. So, for instance, yeah. a a very aggressive type A, you know, whatever you want to say, personality of a female. In marriage, and again, we could talk about like just different interpretations of Ephesians 5 and its implications, but let's take a true complementarian view. That real type A, aggressive, I don't care if she's a roller derbying girl, she still can choose to submit herself to her husband because she is not taking on a persona or an attitude or a disposition per se. Mm -hmm. She is willing to obey God in her relationships. And that will express itself according to her personality in her, in her actions. Um, The other thing to look at too, you've got can men and women both be kind, meek, gentle, strong, bold, courageous, of course. But then is it possible that those characteristics can express themselves differently according to their biological makeup? And I would say that's true as well.
3: Spelling out those differences in concrete ways is very, very difficult. And I was was helped by Mark Cortez, our our other guest here, who had a phrase uh, agnostic gender essentialism. Uh, I think there's some gender differences. If you ask me to spell them out, I'll be somewhat agnostic on that. Mark,
0: yeah, yeah, you're kind of the Master Yoda in this uh, topic. What's. I know you've thought um, through this. We've talked about it, and it's it's I think we've landed on. It's complex. You know, these are yeah. we need to keep asking good questions and not feel like we need to have all the black and white answers.
2: yeah, well, I mean, as you I mean, as we're all aware, one of the the tricky things whenever we kind of move from biological sexuality, which at least in viewed in certain ways, is a little bit more kind of discreet and objective, uh, although there's, of course, an increasingly significant conversation about various intersex conditions that mm-hmm, would sure. be waiting for us if we went down that road uh, much further. Um, but if we kind of kind of restrict ourselves for that, most people, biologically speaking, male um, being male and female is relatively straightforward. Mapping that onto the more kind of gendered, performative identity conversations around gender is much more complicated because of all of the uh, kind of individual, cultural, historical kind of diversities that we've been alluding to here. Um, and so what John's talking about is I I did a paper at a conference a while back where I was trying to wrestle through some of these issues. And should we talk then about gender as being entirely culturally constructed, even if there are these kind of fundamental biological differences, but maybe the ways in which I um, uh, people perform their maleness and femaleness in the world is entirely a, a social construct and is gonna be completely varied. And there are no kind of direct connections between my biological maleness and my cultural performance of that in a particular way, right, so kind of a purely constructivist notion. Um, or a more kind of classically essentialist view where no, my biological maleness does lead to very direct differences in how I perform as a male in the world than how my wife performs as a female in the world. Um, and as I was kind of sifting through that, I realized I'm kind of nervous about the constructivist, like, like a purely constructivist view. Partly, actually, at some point, I want to get back to where Katie started all this and needing to have robust theology of the body at work in this conversation. Um, and, and I feel like if we're not careful down that road lies a devaluation of the significance of my body for basically everything that I do. Uh, mm. And if I have a body and in fact, a male body, then it just has to make a difference for the way that I operate in the world in some way. Um, But everything we've been talking about raises significant questions about some of the straightforward links that more conservative approaches make between biological sexuality and gendered uh, performance Mm -hmm. of those things. So what I was doing is I was kind of toying with the idea of of an agnostic essentialism Um, that, yeah, I kind of I have this deeply held theological intuition that my body matters for how I perform in the world. And therefore, people with male bodies will probably perform their uh, their maleness differently than people with female bodies. But I'm just deeply agnostic about our ability to confidently identify what those things are, Uh, because any difference that we that we kind of pick out, let's say we were to find out that in America, men tend to do a more than women. Men t- tend to do A. Women tend to do B. Um, that's great, but why? Uh, right? Is that a result of biological differences? Is it a result of cultural differences? Yeah. Is it a result of philosophical intuitions about how these things work? Is it a result of a really popular movie that's on these days? There, there are so many things that go into this that I'm just deeply agnostic about our ability to, to specify any particular difference, and then confidently articulate that that is a difference that flows in some direct way from biological differences between men and women.
3: And what kind of deepened my agreement with Mark on that point was just recognizing how few verses there are in Scripture that address this as males and females. Most of Scripture is addressed to us uh, generically, as humans, Mm -hmm. or as Mm -hmm. believers, yeah. Very few verses addressed to us as men. And the ones that are addressed to us as husbands and wives, not as men and women right. per se. Right. So very mm-hmm. few commands are g- given to me. I must do this because I'm a male. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, in, in the view of that the absence of directions mm-hmm. like that, I'm hesitant to legislate stuff.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's one thing that in, in my own research was fascinating, how, how often I read passages through a gendered lens, as if this is talking to men, this is <laughs> talking to women, and how when you step back and it's like, there's only a very, very small set of passages that are that. But the, one of the main ones, uh, Titus 2, which is like Paul says, older women teach younger women too. And he gives a list of 10 commands. At least eight are elsewhere given to men. You know, The only two is, be depending on your translation, be busy at home and submit to your husbands. But even both of those are... Mm, you know, dispute it, but um, at the even a strong and reading of that passage was eight of the ten are equally applied to men elsewhere. Or you know, people mm-hmm. say, what about First Corinthians sixteen where Paul says, "Act like men." I'm like, well, did he pull the men aside when he wrote that verse? <laughs> whatever that my whatever means he's addressing the whole congregation, and the word really means be courageous, but he's telling. Men and women to be courageous. So, yeah, it's I love. I mean, Katie, you're controversial by scare quotes here. You know, uh, understanding of yeah. godly, you know, womanhood. I think is pretty much vanilla when you look at scripture. And, and Mark, to your yeah, I the essentialist construction, construction, constructionist. I only constructivist. Forget, constructivist, yeah. um, where you know, is it our nature? It's it's a nature nurture question. Are we? Do mm-hmm. men act masculine, generally speaking, because? Of biology or because of our culture. Um, and it, it is pretty head-spinning to read thoughtful scholars on both sides of that. Um, if you want a good exercise, Cordella Fine is, is a, a feminist scholar who's much more on the constructivist side. Her book, Testosterone <laughs> Rex" really, really brilliant book. Uh, I don't... It's one of those where I'm like, I need to think through this. But she... she Argues that so much of our masculine behavior is more enculturated. Men are rewarded for masculine behavior from a very mm-hmm. early age. Um, then you go read Carol Hooven, her book T. Testosterone, and she's much more on the essentialist side. Or, 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 um, um, uh, Pink. Who's Pink? Um, the scholar, not the color. Anyway, he, he's much more essentialist. So I mean, when I mean, you read two scholars, you're like. I just end up saying I think it's got to be a both-and. and I don't know if it's 60 40 70 30. the one thing yeah. for me I mean it, it clearly and this is I always get in trouble when I say that word but I'm going to say it again clearly clearly the 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 high levels of testosterone that washes the brain in utero and post utero and and you know through puberty that that just does have some effect generally speaking on behavior and people say no that's still cultured you know well you, there's been studies done on primates you know where it's like you give female monkeys you know option of you know dolls or trucks to play with and they actually went towards the dolls and the male monkeys went towards the trucks you know and I don't think there's like a cultured monkey land you know that does so I mean I I I, to discount biology completely I think is wrongheaded but I also do think yeah I think we are cultured beings and that has an effect more than sometimes we realize anyway so that that's right here's where I land our biology uh, you know aside from reproductive purposes, Does have an effect on gendered type behavior on a general level. Most men will resonate with what we consider to be more masculine kinds of thinking behaviors. Okay. And I do think biology plays at least a role in that. But these are always gendered, these are always generalizations, not absolutes. There were all, there will be exceptions and maybe it's a hormonal off balance. Maybe it's just some dude has lots of testosterone, but he loves ballet and cries more than the average woman or whatever. And that's just some of the beautiful, beautiful diversity of humanity. And we can't determine who is male or female based on whether they fit into these kind of gendered behaviors. So that that's how I kind of understand it. Do you guys have any pushback on that or like response or you're missing this, missing that? Cause I'm, I'm truly, I mean, I'm on a journey. I don't want to claim that I've nailed it or anything, but.
3: I'm with you, Preston. That there's a spectrum here that that these differences are typical more than universal. Yeah, they tend to be like Katie. They, they tend to be more this and that, so they're they're typical but not universal. And for all all of us, our, our goal is to be like Christ-like, for both men and mm-hmm. women. So, yeah, exactly.
0: To come back to Katie's original point, yeah, Mark, any thoughts?
3: Yeah, um, a
2: couple of quick ones. One. Um, To help the, I think the listeners see where this really, I think, hits the road for a lot of Christians uh, is if we're going to say that maleness and females at the biological level is part of divine design. And if we then say that there is some kind of direct connection between maleness and femaleness and the way that um, men ought to operate in the world and women ought to operate in the world. Right now we're saying there's a divine design plan behind the ways in which men ought to live. So that I ought to, to perform my, my embodied life in the world in a way that looks different than the way my wife performs her embodied life in the world. And we can specify that difference. Like Here mm-hmm. is the gender difference between the way I ought to live and the way that my wife ought to live, where that ought is a divine design ought. right? That's the way this gets cashed out in a lot of Christian communities. Even, even if the logic isn't spelled out quite that explicitly, that's the way the logic tends to flow the language that the person that you and John are using of these differences being typical, right. Tends to lead away from the oughtness of it, right. right? There's an oughtness that has to do with Christian faithfulness, broadly speaking for all embodied humans in the world, uh, but not the oughtness of um, I have to live out my embodied life differently than my wife does because Mm -hmm. of divine design plan that specifies the differences in which we ought to live.
0: That's a a great, Yeah. yeah.
2: That's super helpful,
0: Katie. Any, any thoughts on this?
1: I, I'm with you on. I think it's both and, and it's it's in, it's nearly impossible to uh, identify necessarily. Kind of, it's like the chicken and the egg. It's like, is sure. it biology or is it culture? Yeah. And so, yeah, and that's where going back to like a definition of biblical womanhood or biblical manhood being you are a male or a female who is uh, obeying all of God's commands in your life and relationships, and essentially let Him work that out. We don't necessarily yeah. have to it. I I can't tell you how many different uh, definitions of biblical womanhood that I would read and they have to do with either a personality or a temperament or uh, an attitude. And it's like, well, someone, someone doesn't fit this Uh and and they're not supposed to, because that's not how God made them temperamentally. Um, But, but how do we still live out our embodied femaleness in a way that, honors, glorifies, and reflects the God who made us. And so mm-hmm. that's where I think I think almost trying not to systematize it um, yeah. helps solve a lot of problems.
0: That's good. I just remember the, 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 the essentialist scholar, Stephen Pinker, was who I was thinking of. His book, uh, The Blank Slate, mm-hmm. very... His chapter on children in that book was almost robotic. Like, basically, children <laughs> have a certain built-in personality that you're just not going to that's just going to it's it's going to be what it is and there's almost nothing you can do to affect it that's my summary paraphrase of 5 years after reading the book anyway um can we move into a different topic cuz there's two more that I really yeah. want to talk about singleness and ai and we're coming up on uh 45 uh almost 50, well, 50 minutes right now so h- how um <laughs> that's like a whiplash turn but how does theological anthropology help us to think through questions related to AI? And this is an area that I know almost nothing about, and yeah, I'm deeply interested in.
3: Well, the, I think the most important thing is, is simply how we define human uniqueness. If we focus on our ability to reason as being the defining human distinctive, then AI can be a threat. Uh, but I think it's wrong to focus on human reason as being the human distinctive. Uh, I think that's not the proper understanding of image of God. Now, image of God is a, a vast topic that we don't have time to get all the way through, but in terms of seeing that as not being focused on reason, I think there's many reasons for not, not focusing on that point. First being in terms of people that, that lose the ability to reason. Hmm. Are those with Alzheimer's no longer image of God? Do they no longer have the human distinctive? Well, I think we need to find out human distinctive is something other than the ability to reason. Honestly, so so if if we see that, I think that gives us a guard against uh, seeing AI as a threat.
0: I, so I just talked to a guy, uh, Joshua Smith, on the podcast. He just kind of kept emphasizing that behind AI is is a human. At this, at some point, there is a human doing this. And he he was kind of like yeah. against the idea that AI can become this kind of independent thing and end up, you know, like Terminator Two and end up killing humanity. Like he said, he says that's just he doesn't see that as a realistic threat. But is that does that um, do, for I guess one, do you agree with that? Number two. Does that mean AI is perfectly compatible with understanding humanity's uniqueness if if, if there's a human behind it like there is with every other kind of invention? I don't know if that's a good question to ask. That could be a stupid question.
3: (laughs) Well, I'm just not that that familiar with AI. I've got some people that are uh, expressing uneasiness about it. But I do think that that maybe Josh has a point there in terms of a human being behind it. But even more important, that looking at distinctiveness in something other than your reason. I think is the key thing for me.
2: Uh, uh, Preston, I wonder if some of the question has to do with, it seems to me that AI could be viewed as a threat in a couple of different ways in this conversation. Uh, right. One of it that we haven't touched on quite yet is just how AI relates to human flourishing. Um, right. Kind of all technologies raise questions, right. About how technology shapes us and the extent to which it does or does not contribute to us being the kinds of creatures that God made us to be. Um, and, My sense is that's where a lot of, like with the chat GPT conversation, that's where a lot of that conversation is going. Is It's not too much a a threat. The other way it could be a threat would be to human identity, Mm. right? Kind of fundamentally, who are we and how are we unique in the world? That's the question John's raising. Um, But I think there's another very legitimate conversation to be had about other ways in which um, uh, we might talk about how AI relates to theological anthropology more in the the flourishing kinds of categories. Um, But I think John's, my sense is, Anytime we try to focus on hum, um, kind of what is it that makes us unique in terms of here's something distinctive about us as creatures, like here's some kind of intrinsic thing about humans that's different from all other creatures, and that's the thing that makes us unique. Um, I think we're going to run into problems with AI, intelligent primates aliens, all kinds of things, if that's the way we come at this. Because uh, uh, in that sense, we're no more unique than any other creature is unique. Like There's something about a hamster that's unique to a hamster that's not true of any other creature. Uh, when we talk about human uniqueness theologically, we're not usually talking about that unique, we're the only human, just like hamsters are the only hamsters. We're usually wanting to make an affirmation that somehow humans are uniquely unique. Right. There's something about us that's unique in a way that no other creature can claim to uniqueness. And I just don't think you're ever going to find that in some distinctive capacity or future or, or feature of, of human nature.
3: I'll push back on that. Let me push back on it just, uh, How about the capacity for relationship with God? Mm-hmm. Might mm-hmm. be something that's unique to humans.
2: Yeah, this one might take a lot. I don't think th- what you're talking about is actually a capacity. Um, I okay. think we have a variety of capacities that we then use in the context of our relationship with God. Uh, So I do think what makes us unique is the fact that God chose to enter into a relationship with us, Um, and that is the thing that makes us different. But notice the way that I phrase that doesn't locate the uniqueness in anything that's that's a particular feature of mine. It's a particular feature of the fact that God chose to enter into a, a unique kind of relationship with us. And so in that sense, AI wouldn't pose any threat um, to human identity. I I think it raises legitimate questions on the flourishing side of things, but there's no challenge on the identity side of things because God didn't choose to enter into a unique kind of covenantal relationship with AI things he entered into a unique covenantal relationship with humans.
0: It's, it is the human flourishing side where my mind goes. Um, I feel like we've already seen, we've already tried and failed at the whole social media experiment. <laughs> increased. I mean, increased rates and in anxiety, loneliness, depression, suicidality, especially for teenagers, you know, we're handing them the internet at 11 and stuff like we've, we've, even though we've all seen the social dilemma, even though we've all seen the studies, even though um, anecdotally we know it makes us less happy, the more we scroll, we just can't stop. So we failed that experiment. And to me, it's like AI is like all that on steroids. So it's like we're already like down 0 and 2. <laughs> like, are we going to be able to um, get on base? I, I, So I, that's where I'm like, I think... Because, like, where where Josh and I, our conversation was like, well, if if you know, like, any technology, we can use it for good. We just need to be aware of kind of the dangers. I'm like, oh, I totally agree. I'm really pessimistic about us <laughs> being being not aware of the dangers, but actually taking that seriously. So, like, I I, I worry about AI stunting human creativity, um, uh, stunting our ability to read and research and and actually mm-hmm. think critically um, to actually prepare sermons. But then I was like, I don't know, like if I punch in, you know, give me a sermon on Romans three and I get like within 30 seconds, the most amazing, rhetorically powerful, biblically accurate sermon. And I go and read that and it changes lives and it's biblical. I do need a counter argument why that's a bad thing. Um, my best counter argument is I think there is some spiritual formation in the very process of preparation, Mm -hmm. you know, but Mm -hmm. I I don't know. These are all, I'm just kind
2: of freaking out about the whole thing, quite honestly. (laughs) (laughs) On that last point, Preston, um, I want to say two things. I mean, one, I think you're right. Like There's something formative about the process of even you at this stage in your own kind of professional development still going through the work of doing mm-hmm. things. Um, my bigger worry is actually less somebody who has already developed a certain sort of skills and has already arrived at a certain level of formation using something like ChatGPT as a tool okay. to help them do the thing they're already able to do. My, my worry is about people using that tool much earlier in the process and truncating their own formation and development. Uh, and the analogy that I've heard a couple people use is using calculators to learn math. Sure. Yeah. And we, we all use calculators all the time. I don't remember the last time I did something complex math-wise without using a calculator. Um, but I did that after having already developed some pretty fundamental and foundational skills with respect to math. Yeah. Right, So that I even had teachers saying things like, I know you're going to go on to do this with a calculator, like moving on, but you need to know how to do this. And that was really annoying when I was going through the process. But looking back on it, there's a lot of truth to, to be said there. Mm-hmm. Um, so a seasoned pastor using something like chat gpt to help them strengthen a sermon they already know how to make that raises a different set of questions uh, mm. that I'm actually I'm, I'm less worried about even though they're valid yeah. questions. That's good. The beginning pastor using chat gpt and uh, ending up with an anemic ability to develop sermons and, and an understanding of how sermons work um, mm. that's what really worries me. That's
0: good. Katie, I, I could see your wheels turning with all this. What are, what are your thoughts on all this?
1: I think that similar to social media, we're gonna we're gonna end up using it without thinking through those philosophical questions, and we're only talking about the pragmatic or the practical ones, and those are very important. I think the the one that I hear it in terms of is, um, oh, you watch the news and it's just doomsday. It's you know national security yeah. job going to just replace all of us. Yeah. And so, uh, but it's a pretty incredible conversation. It's an opportunity to have a conversation among Christians um, about, you know, this leads to questions of what does it mean to be human? At what point could this, you have some of these, you know, tech gurus saying, no, really, I can become sentient very soon. And, uh, you know, we need congressional hearings on this. Uh, it's, it's worth bringing that up to say, at what point, what, what is it that makes us human? And I love what Mark was saying that God is, it's essentially God determines our humanity and God is the one who decided to enter into relationship with us in a way that he does not relate to any other creation or any other creation that his creations could have created. Um, and so it, I think it's a, it's a, it's one of those things that generationally come around that, that it's this opportunity you'll, mm-hmm. we'll end up seeing more a lot more books and articles and conversations and ets themes over it and all of that
0: yeah. so it just seems like the technology is far outpacing our reflection on the pros and cons of yes. it that's that's my biggest and, and some of the people who are high up in this field are raising that alarm like this this is progressing way too we need to step back think about what does regulation look like what are the uh, healthy ways of developing this what are the bad you know Already, I mean, teachers and – right? I mean, aren't teachers like – you guys are all teachers. I mean, are, are students turning in AI-generated research papers, and how do you combat that? Are they Do they be well, – Our having
3: policies for for uh, yeah. uh, how much they can use these things as well. So, yeah, so something schools have to respond to.
0: Huh. Yeah. For the
3: reason that Mark said, you know, they're, they're, they're beginning to use their their skills now. And rather than short-circuit development of those skills, by using these things, we want them to actually know how to research, critically think those types of things. And so – the schools need to respond in terms of policies.
2: What are you guys doing over at Wheaton, Mark? We're, we're kind of similarly, we have a committee that's going to be working on this in the fall um, to come up with a set of guidelines. It's a little tricky because we, we anticipate that each discipline will end up having a different set of needs with respect to this. Uh, so I don't know, um, uh, an engineering student might use ChatGPT in just a fundamentally different way than a theology student. Uh, so uh, we're anticipating that they're going to be need to be a bit more abstract principles rather than specific kinds of how-tos when it uh-huh. comes to implementing something like this. Uh, and then we also need to go back to the pace of change. Um, uh, I mean, technology specifically in general, yes, these kinds of conversations Um, Like my understanding is what chat GPT three came out, I think in November or so four just came out and is still kind of behind a paywall. So I haven't used it yet. The difference between the two is not incremental from what I'm being told by people who have used it. Yeah. There is a dramatic increase in capacity between just three and four over a period of about six months. Um, And uh, I am, as in kind of going back to all the policy things, I'm a little bit skeptical about our ability to come up with policies that uh, if there are kind of detailed policies that are going to keep up with that pace of change.
0: I don't know how you would, yeah, because I mean, how do you, somebody turns in a paper that's like, ah, this feels a little bit too good to be true. How do you know whether they really worked hard and stayed up late or maybe use it for a footnote or something. That's kind of like, well, I guess that's okay. But, um, or they just punched it in and spat out the paper, mm-hmm. you know? Um, well, I mean, there's and- a
2: really good article and I think the Chronicle of higher education a while back, uh, and I forget the title of it. It was basically a, an undergraduate saying, Hey, yes, we're using chat GPT. We're just not using it the way you think we are. Okay. And the whole point of the article mm-hmm. is that we're largely not telling chat GPT to write our papers for us. Because uh, like that, that's too easy to catch, although actually it is, and it's kind of hard to find that. Um, and she kind of walked us through her process where she's using Chat GPT to give her like six or seven possible thesis statements in response to the prompt. And then she'll kind of look through those and decide which ones which one sounds interesting. And she'll be like, okay, um, for number three, give me an outline of how one might argue for that particular thesis statement. Uh, And then she'll have chat GPT develop the outline for us. And then she'll use that as the backbone for writing her paper, right? So the writing is all hers, making it virtually undetectable by anything that we currently have, Uh, even though she used chat GPT to do all of the things that I think are the most fundamentally (laughs) important parts of this, right? Thinking critically, Mm -hmm. coming up with a point that you want to make, figuring out how you're going to develop and defend that point. Yeah. Um, so she, she, she's using it for all of the things I don't want her to use it for, but doing it in a way that is so behind the scenes, it'll be very yeah. difficult to detect as a professor.
0: I think the counter argument or the argument in favor of all that is like, well, yeah, Plato freaked out, you know, or the printing press, you know, people are not going to be able to memorize stuff like they used to. They're just going to rely on the written word and, you know, like every technological or television and internet, like every technological shift or advancement, has this kind of generation of freak outness or people having to adjust. But in in the long run, it's just, this just becomes part of how society operates. And people look back and almost don't even think about what the world was like before, for good or for ill, I guess. I mean, the teaching went back when I was teaching. We, you know, it was so we had students that would turn in stuff that like whole paragraphs just cut and pasted from the internet. And all I had to do is like copy, paste, put it in Google. Or one time they left a hyperlink in. I'm like, come on, If you're going to cheat at least. Don't leave the hyperlink. And it took me to some Mormon website or something that they're, you know, yeah. like, dude, this is just bad cheating, you know, at least be a good cheater. But, um, but then I just don't did this, to catch you can't do that with if some if a paper sounds really good, it's their word against yours. It seems like, I don't know. I've never actually mm-hmm. used chat GPT one, two, three, mm-hmm. four or five, whatever. I don't, I don't know, but. Well, I've taken you guys really far, and I, I know we've opened up lots of cans we didn't even get to. Uh, we're going to talk about singleness and marriage and how theological anthropology relates to that, but uh, I will uh, we'll just point people to your book. The book is called yeah. Humanity. That's it. Great title. I <laughs> um, would encourage everybody to uh, check it out, and uh, like you said, its it's no matter what whether you're a parent, a youth leader, senior pastor, or just person, I think everybody would really benefit from this book. It's it's very well researched, um, it's thorough, but not 800 pages, and it's just very easy to follow and very practical. So, uh, I encourage people to check it out. Thank you all for coming on Theology Now. I really appreciate the the four way conversation.
1: Thank you.
0: Good to see, Good to see you, Preston. you.